I want to begin, though, not there, not with the geography of Kansas City, but with the geography of a very different region. It's a fictional region. It's the world of Middle Earth. Some of you have heard of this fictional world, just to clarify. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a series of books that are now called The Lord of the Rings. And uh, in one of them, and I'm thinking especially of the cinematic vision, there is this epic battle about to break out in what is called the Two Towers, and there's this wizard named Gandalf who is something of a Christ-like figure in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and just when battle is about to break out against the evil forces of Saruman, this really bad guy, uh, Gandalf makes a promise to the other good guys. I'm having to simplify all sorts of details because Tolkien is very complex, as I'm sure you know. So just before total war, breaks out, Gandalf says to the good guys, look for my coming at dawn on the third day. And then Helm's Deep, right after this, as some of you know in the Two Towers, is plunged into battle, total war. Our passage today reminds us of a true, not fictional, and much greater promise, specifically the promise of God to strengthen His people and supply them with all they need in the Word. We're going to be looking this morning at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, if you'll turn there now in the New Testament towards the very end, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Word of God, written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray now as we turn to Your Holy Word that you would bless us, that you would strengthen us, that you would open our eyes to see truth that you have planted there for our good, that we would come away from this time in your word trusting it more and in truth trusting you more. We pray that Christ would be lifted high in this hour. In his great name we pray, amen. I want to walk through these just two verses with you this morning and show you three points, three points this morning. The first is this. We, as humanity, do not have what we need. That's my first point. We don't have what we need. Our passage this morning is all about how God has given us what we need, and so hold that thought. But before we get there, we have to see this first truth, that we are not all sufficient in ourselves. A bit of background before we dive in. Peter identifies himself in 2 Peter 1 verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the Peter we read about earlier in the service just a few minutes ago. This is the Peter who was a, an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. This is the Peter who probably wrote this letter from prison in Rome. You can see 2 Peter 1 verses 12 through 15 after the service if you want more details about his setting. Peter is, at the time of this writing, soon to be executed, uh, according to his own words and according to church tradition beyond it, executed for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's estimated that Peter was martyred somewhere between A.D. 64 and 67 during the reign of the wicked Roman ruler Nero. 
It's impossible to identify with certainty what churches Peter is addressing here. We don't know precisely his audience. It appears to some scholars that he has been writing to the churches of Asia Minor because Peter mentions that this is his second letter to these same people, 2 Peter 3, verse 1. Peter's first need is to establish to us, to his first century readers, just before he goes to death, that they and we, by extension, do not have the ability to gain for ourselves what we most need from life. We learn this in verse 3 when we see that God has done what we cannot do. He has given us, quote, everything required for life and godliness. This tells us right off the bat that we are a lacking people. Now, what I have just said is a sentiment and a statement contrary to everything we hear in our secularizing culture today, which is very me-focused, which tells me that if I just will, will empower myself and own my own strength, I can do everything I need to do to conquer all of life's trials. There is evidence strongly to the contrary of that truth, but that is what we hear today. The Bible starts on the opposite standpoint. We are insufficient for the task before us, this thing called life, and beyond this life, eternity. The Bible continually does this to us, doesn't it? It tells us two polar opposite truths about humanity. First, we are wholly inadequate, insufficient, and sinful. It's the first thing it says to us from Genesis to Revelation. We cannot get it done. This whole thing with obeying God and pleasing God and following Him purely and perfectly all the way to glory, you and I can't get it done. Not just those who don't want to get it done, every last one of us cannot get it done. The second truth the Bible tells us is this, we bear infinite value as the image of God, Genesis 1 26 and 27. And I mean that phrase carefully, infinite value. We are those created by Almighty God Himself. See Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is not a tone poem. Genesis 2 is actually telling us about human origins, and it tells us that the Lord made the man from the dust, and, it made, and God made the woman from the man's rib. And so, as I say, you cannot capture, even if you tried, just how much dignity and worth every human being has, regardless of what they look like, their background, their mental or physical capacities, it makes no difference. Every human being has infinite dignity and worth as made by God. And beyond this, though we fall in Adam, tragically, Genesis 3, God in His mercy and kindness has made a way for us back to Him. So, He has first stamped us with dignity and worth by making us in His image, and then even after the fall, even after man turns away from Him and disobeys Him, God makes a way back to Himself. So, this tells us just how much God values humanity, how much He is calling us to Himself in every page of Scripture. Sometimes people choose one of these truths or the other. You can end up either with a disnified, self-esteem-driven version of Christianity, or you can end up with a miserable version of Christianity. Both are options before us if we do not comprehend both of these truths about the doctrine of man. As I say, in all this, 
the reality Peter is establishing for us is that we do not have what we need either for this life or the next. We cannot trick ourselves on this point. We can't do anything to make ourselves worthy of eternal life. We hear that, but it's not true. It's like bread trying to make itself toast. That's what it's like to try to give yourself eternal life. Toast is a common uh, reality in the Strand household these days. The Pepperidge Farm cinnamon toast is oft deployed at mealtime, and so hence the illustration from toast. I think about it a lot these days. Eat it a lot. In truth, we all hit our limits in this life, don't we? We all do. I remember praying, yes, this shows a somewhat immature spiritual life, but hang with me. I remember praying to become a serious basketball player. Just a smattering of laughs. The last last time I used that line, I got openly laughed at by the congregation. So, thank you for your kindness. I remember this. I really wanted to transcend my creaturely limits and be, it feels silly just to say it in public, but here we are, be an NBA player. It did not work out, just so you know, although there may be a franchise coming to Kansas City, we hear. But in in truth, God was teaching me at a young age in a kind of silly way, as he does with us all in some form, that I had my own limits. I had my prescribed limits as his creation. This goes much deeper than sports or peer culture or high school or something like this. We all hit our limits, and we all do not have what we most need. You see, the greatest need for man, for humanity, is eternal life. We are going to exist. You are going to exist eternally in either heaven or hell. And you and I, again, have no ability in ourselves to lay hold of salvation unto heaven. It cannot happen. We cannot honor God in our own strength. We do not have what's required. This is the implication of 2 Peter 1, verse 3. And this leads us to our second point. Second, through God, we have all we need. Through God, as believers, we have all we need. The bad news is we don't have what we need. The good news is, according to this verse, this passage, God has acted to help us. We have every single thing we could ever need for life and godliness. In the Greek, zdoe kai eusebia. That's Peter's phrase. Life and godliness, translated according to most English translations. Life, as Tom Schreider notes, uh, refers most likely to eternal life. And godliness refers to all facets of the Christian life that flow from conversion. Conversion in the name, by the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ himself. So what God is telling us is quite revolutionary, not just for unbelievers, though it is. It is absolutely catalytic for you if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is as catalytic for you as a believer. Because everything you need for eternal life, which you already know about, I'm guessing, but also for godliness, for this Greek term, eusebia, you have been granted not most of what you need for godliness, not a really significant portion of it, everything you need to please the Lord God Almighty is yours through union with Jesus Christ secured by the Holy Spirit. That means you have no excuse 
for not obeying the Lord, not walking with him. You and I have no excuse for not following the word, not living in faith. We all falter. I do. You do as uh, sinful human beings. Until Christ returns and makes all things right and brings all things to their consummation, we will battle against the flesh. I will and you will. But this particular phrase is so important for us in that fight, isn't it? Is it not encouraging to you to know that you have everything you need for Eusebia, for godliness, the godly life? There's never a point, in other words, when you're in a, shall we say, marital conversation and you're finding your patience stretched or you are stretching your spouse's patience uh, and you find yourself thinking, I, I really want to be godly here. I really want to interact in a Christ-like way. I don't have it today. I just don't have it. I wish I did, but I don't. No, you and I have it every single time we need it. There's never a time for you and me with our kids when we could be loving and compassionate, uh, but God fails to effectively fund it in the spiritual bank account. The spiritual bank account, if I can speak crassly, is funded. It is funded in totality. You and I may draw off it infinitely and never stop. God will always give us what we need for the godly life. This is so encouraging for Christian men and women like you and me, all of whom hit our limits in a spiritual sense daily. We have no excuse. We have what we need. God has acted. Christians are so used to focusing on the conversionistic nature of different Bible passages and promises that we lose sight of the discipling nature of biblical passages. This, this verse is not just saying you have what it takes to get saved, your central need in all the cosmos. It is also saying you have all you need to please the Lord. Praise God for this truth. By his own glory and goodness, Peter says, the Lord has called us to himself. End of verse this is the purpose of all things, friends. This is why man and all things exist. The purpose of your humble life is to show that God is awesome. That's why you're here. You do not have extrinsic value, which means value that is granted you by your peers, by external forces. You do not have to earn value as a human being. These are absolutely revolutionary words driven from the Bible. It's just basic biblical common sense. But you don't have to earn your worth. Friends, all around us, people are trying to earn and justify their worth and their identity and build it from scratch. Express yourself. Be your truest person. Be authentic to yourself. These are all slogans of one form or another that we hear today. They're all attempts at least at some level, for me to, to try to grab value for myself and put it on myself as if it's not there already. In the Christian life, we have intrinsic value, as I have already spelled out a little bit. God made us, and especially as a Christian, God has called you, Peter says, to himself. You have intrinsic value, believer. There is nothing else you need to do to be a God-honoring, God-loving follower. He has granted this by His own glory and goodness. This is absolutely freeing words. 
absolutely free, to know that I do not have to justify myself in my own strength, to know that I don't have to make myself valuable and, and look good in the eyes of others. I can be freed to, to be just who I am in Christ. I can be freed to be embarrassed at work. I can be freed to be humiliated by my peers for my Christian testimony at college or in high school or junior high. It matters not. It matters not because God has deemed you in his son of infinite value. He has saved you. We believe here in a church like this in what is called in theological terms, theocentric anthropology. Theocentric anthropology. In other words, God-centered humanity. We believe that you cannot learn the most important truths there are to learn from secular science, from a university-level class in evolutionary theory. We believe that the most important truths about men and women, about humankind, are learned only in the Scripture. That is where we are defined. That is where we come to understand who we are. Science can tell us all sorts of things about the world God has made, and we study it with aplomb and gusto even, but we do not accept secular hypotheses. We do not accept a secular starting point. Hear me clearly. We believe in God-centered anthropology, God-defined. This is why it's so important to understand that Genesis 1 is not simply talking about the creation of the world, the way God brought all things into being, though it clearly is. It is also talking about the origin of mankind, and it is staking out a totally different ground than other ancient Near Eastern religions and then a secular worldview common in 2018. Praise God for God. Praise God for God. Peter focuses our attention squarely here on God's agency to make us his own. It is, we see early in verse 3, his divine power. His divine power, power possessed by God alone that has granted us both eternal life to come, as I have said, and fullness of spiritual life now. Look at how Peter directs our attention to power. Power fascinates us, doesn't it, as human beings? The Bible has a stake in that conversation. The Bible is actually a book about power, but not our power. The Bible is a book about divine power. Think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows us a God who creates the world, destroys the Canaanites, swallows the Egyptians in a terrible, terrible flood of immense power, rescues his covenant people from certain death again and again and again, and even judges his own people when they fall away from him and sin against him through Babylon and Persia. No consultation of the will of man uh, there's not a 60-40 uh, power split between God and His creation. God is powerful, we learn in the Old Testament. He is all-powerful. He is totally, comprehensively, absolutely sovereign. The New Testament shows us the same, doesn't it? It shows us a father, God the Father, often the forgotten member of the Godhead, as my father-in-law will say. God the Father who sends His only Son into the world as an act of salvation Son gathers disciples unto himself, overturns the natural working of the cosmos in one miracle after another as seen in the Gospels. The Father appoints the Son to death on a Roman cross to absorb the Father's just wrath, a, an increasingly despised doctrine in our time, that the Son would absorb the Father's just wrath, every word in that sentence being important. 
and biblically true. The Father raises the Son from a grave. Everyone fears death at some level as a human person. We pretend we don't, especially outside of Christ. We make it look good. We're seeing a rash, horribly, of suicides in our culture. In 2018, suicide rate has risen. I think I saw 45% in Kansas in the last few years. There's an epidemic among us that the church has the only answer for. That's the whole point of this text and even this message. But look at the Father's response to death. He raises His Son. He calls Him out of the grave, and He will do the same for you. The Father sends the Son back into the world, the book of Revelation, to complete the work of devil destruction begun at Calvary. The point of 2 Peter 1 verse 3 is that God is powerful. We are not. God is in control. We are not. Praise be to God for how He has orchestrated and ordained all things. Third, we must continually trust God's promises and God's Word. This is my final point. We must continually trust God's promises and His Word. This passage, 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4, does not use the word Scripture or Bible, but if you read it carefully, in terms of our summer series, you see from where all our help comes, God's revelation, isn't it? We have all we need for life and godliness, zdoe kaiusibia, through the knowledge, verse 3, the knowledge of Him. This sure knowledge of God in Christ comes only through the Bible. There's nowhere else to find it. You cannot be walking in a delightful stroll through the woods and discover the saving knowledge of Christ. Christ is the logos of God, we learn in John 1. He is, in other words, the true wisdom of the divine. Without Christ, we cannot know the Father. Without Christ, we have no knowledge in this sense of this kind. You can know facts about things, hashtag true facts, but you cannot know the ultimate truth of the cosmos, namely how you and I may be saved and restored to our original purpose in Christ. Jesus is not a mystical apparition. Jesus is not a feeling. Jesus is not an emoji. Jesus is not something you wear around a blinged-out chain. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the God who became man, the Messiah, the way, the truth and the life. Jesus did not come to sprinkle fairy dust on our spiritual senses and make us feel a little bit better in vaguely religious terms. Jesus came teaching, didn't He? He came teaching and revealing His deity through His deeds. He came to give the true revelation in word and deed of the Father. This is part of why the pastor Christian pastor needs to be a theologian because we have to teach what Jesus and his apostles and the Old Testament before this taught. Every pastor, whatever their degree level or this sort of thing, needs to be a theologian, an in Christ theologian. 
you know, over all this, we are not called fundamentally to, to simply feel a certain way about Jesus, important as our feelings, our affections, to use a Jonathan Edwards word, both Pastor Rick and I love Jonathan Edwards, his life and theology, but we're not simply called to have our affections inflamed for Christ. We are called to know Him. We're called to know Him. How strange is it to get married to someone and never get to know them? You've been married for 20 years, and you're aware of their existence, but you know nothing about them that you have gained in the past 20 years. How strange would it be to have children, even, I don't know, nieces and nephews, or kids at school who are there before you, but you know nothing about? Nothing. Maybe you know their name, nothing more. In a similar way, we are called to absolutely be gluttons for the truth that is in Jesus Christ, out of love, out of devotion, out of a holy desperation to feed our souls. So many Christians around us are starving for the truth, the truth that is plainly before us in the Word of God. It's right there for the taking. You can be a glutton for Jesus and for the knowledge of Christ. Nothing will stop you. I have no idea what your income level will be. I don't know what your earthly path will be. I don't know what it will be for myself, for my family. But I do know this. There's nothing restraining us from the knowledge of Christ, which is granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. Too often we slip into a mindset where we focus on what we don't have, what we don't have. The Bible points us to praise God and worship Him daily for what we do have. Every one of us has trials. Every one of, every one of us has tribulations to walk through in this life. But the biblical accent is not on our, our lacking. The biblical accent here and elsewhere is on what we have gained in Christ. That's true for everyone in here, whatever our present challenges may be. We can sum up here. God has given us all we need for life through the knowledge of Christ. He has also given us, Peter says, verse 4, very great and precious promises. These promises allow us to, wow, share in the divine nature and escape our evil world, Peter says. The gifts here, again, are immense. God is displayed here as the fountain and the cause of everything good in our lives, temporal and eternal. Again, this good news shows us just how bad we have it outside of God's gift. Outside of the gift of God, we have death, wickedness, participation in the flesh, and we follow, verse 4, our evil desires without inhibition. This is very important, this phrase, evil desires. Camp out here for just a minute. If you look at, if you look at statistics on sexual compromise, on things like pornography, I want to speak very carefully here, but if you look at those statistics, even in the Christian church, you will be shocked. You will be horrified at what they reveal about our moral compromises. But if you raise the issue that even a fleeting desire for an evil thing, for a wicked thing, is an act of sin, if you raise this on social media, for example, prepare to get whacked, prepare to have people come after you. Uh, this has happened to me even recently in different conversations that have been had in evangelical circles. The Bible does not present us with desires that are primarily neutral, though if we really wanted to parse it out, we could probably get to that point if we thought carefully. Some things maybe are neutral, 
to, to want. The Bible, though, really focuses a lot of attention on killing evil desire for the Christian. That's where Peter, Paul, and other biblical authors spend a lot of energy putting evil desires to death. How do you put evil desires to death? How do you end three, four, five years of compromised internet usage? I think you understand the euphemism. How do you kill it? How do you not simply take two steps forward, three steps back? You kill it at the level of desire. You kill it first. When you have a wicked thought, even fleeting, you want something, you feel it well up in you in a Matthew 5, 21 to 30 sense, lust, see this passage after the sermon, or, or anger, when, when you, you think in your heart, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 to 30, fool to somebody who wrongs you. I think the image there in, in Matthew 5 that Jesus is using is of somebody basically humiliating you in public. Think about a moment of open shame, the, the worst nightmare for many of us, you know, to be publicly humiliated, and then to turn to the person who just did it, the main perpetrator who was laughing at you, and say, fool, to have a murderous thought in your heart. This isn't a sanitized understanding of anger that Jesus gives us. Jesus understands the wildness, the wild depravity that is in the human heart. Evil desires issue out from your heart and mine. Evil desires. The way to overcome them is to identify them as evil, to confess them even for a fleeting moment. If it's something that is wrong to want, that should be something you confess. You think, isn't this going to be a lot of confession? It probably will. The good news is God sanctifies us over time and gives us renewed desires and helps us not to always have the same level of struggle that we initially did, but we also have to know, as Martin Luther said, that the whole Christian life is called to be a life of repentance. Luther was opposing the Catholic understanding of penitence, but he was trying to also help his people understand in Germany that this didn't mean <laughs> no longer being sorrowful over sin, this whole born-again thing that was recovered in the 16th century, justification by faith alone, it actually was still going to mean all sorts of, of sadness over sin, but it was going to mean full-throated, Christ-directed confession and repentance. This is not a chain that we lay around the neck of a certain group in the church, those who have same-sex attraction, those who have heterosexual attraction, those who are covetous. This is for all of us. We all, friends, we all are called to battle, not simply evil actions. That's not what Peter says, is it? We are called to battle evil desires. In Christ, you have all you need for Eusebia, the life of godliness. That's the good news for us this morning. We are also able, Peter says, to become like God, to become like God, to share in the divine nature. What a phrase that is. Peter is telling us here, not that we will become, take on the ontology, that is, to use a high-level word, of the divine. You and I are not going to merge somehow into a fourth person of the Godhead, all of us. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that we're going to be morally perfected. Such a good word for what we were just talking about. We will be sanctified by the Spirit. We will grow as we feed on the Word of God more and more. We will be changed by degree from degree into the image of Jesus Christ. As time goes on, 
as the Spirit does its work. God will change us. There will be significant battles that we fight now that we will not fight after years of the development of character and self-control, which verses 5 through 8 are going to spell out. We don't simply believe in trusting Christ, and that's it as Christians. That's not what it means to hold to a gospel-centered theology. We believe in being converted, but then we believe in being sanctified. And all of that is through grace. All of it is by divine grace. So to sum up here, we are not deified, according to Peter, uh, this passage, as in Eastern Orthodoxy. We're not deified. We do, however, grow into the very character of God, sharing in the very holiness of God itself. That's what happens to believers. This shows us all of this, that the world is a battlefield of promises. It's a battlefield of promises. This is true for you personally, and it's true for all of us cosmically. What do I mean? I mean that long ago, if you go back to Genesis 3, you see that God and the serpent entered into a war of promises. The Lord promised Adam everlasting life if he would obey him. That's a promise, right? Tracking with me? The serpent slithers in in Genesis 3 and does what? Promises Eve that she would be like God if she would obey him. The man and the woman, as you know, chose to believe the promises of the devil over the promises of the God, of our God. Promises made and broken thus form the story of the world. And you and I have entered into this reality as well. People structure, structure their life, excuse me, around promises. They do. There, there, there's a banner written over their life that determines, really, what they are going after. It's true for all of us at some level. So think about it this morning. What promises are you hoping in? The promise of success through unending work? The promise of beauty through unceasing attention to self? The promise of value, extrinsic value, through people being attracted to you, the opposite sex being attracted to you? The promise of worth through the recognition of your peers? The promise of status through having the perfect-looking family? The promise of pure happiness through getting married, the promise of impressiveness through athletic achievement, the promise of freedom through leaving the church. That's a big one today, I think, for younger men and women. If I could just get rid of the church and live the way I want to live, I would be truly happy. Because of original sin and our own depravity, we're all tempted to look for the ultimate in the particular. In other words, to find God, or think we can, we can't, to find God in things that are not God, in other words. But there is good news for wayward sinners like us. God's promises are better and greater. They are, Peter says, very great and precious. The Greek word here for precious is timia, which means highly valued, of great, great cost, the kind of thing as a person that you save up for years and even decades to give as a gift. I don't know, a diamond ring or something on a multi-decade anniversary. That kind of precious, but far greater than anything we can imagine in this life. It's pointing us to what Jesus did. He fulfilled all God's promises at the great cost, the precious, to me, cost of His very lifeblood, the blood of the Son of God. We sometimes say, to ourselves, to one another. Everything's going to turn out okay. And oftentimes that is the case. In earthly terms, I mean, things resolve, 
basic little problems are overcome. You know, you're supposed to say something at your kid's school graduation and, you know, your voice does not desert you most of the time. This works out. You understand what I'm saying? But everything may not turn out, too, in earthly terms. We all learn this at some level. We make promises to one another, in other words, that we cannot necessarily ground. We think of this as parents. One of the worst things to do in life is to fail your children by making a promise and by keeping it. So, uh, I am no perfect example here, but when I promise we are playing Monopoly with my son, who is good at it, I need to make sure that uh, those bills are flying later in the day. He's beating me already. He's seven. So, there's that to think about for me. The good news is this. Though you and I as earthly fathers and mothers and earthly people do not keep our promises, God the Father has never failed His children. He has never broken a promise. He has never failed to keep His word. He always honors what He says. God promised a warrior Savior in Genesis 3 after the fall, and Christ crushed the head of Satan. God promised a suffering servant to Isaiah, and Christ came to suffer and die. God promised that His Son would return. False teachers denied this, 2 Peter 3, 9, in Peter's own day. But Christ will return. So Peter reminded his readers, God's promise in the Bible is essentially this, all the evil things will come untrue, and all the good things will come to pass in Jesus, through Him, through His agency. So we have covered this morning in brief, inadequately, how God has given us the knowledge of Christ and His great promises in His Word. Each of these ideas points us to one and only one sure source of blessing and spiritual life, the Bible. This leads us to the major takeaway then of this message and of these verses, the revelation of God, the knowledge He gives us of Christ, and the promises He makes in Scripture and keeps. The revelation of God is sufficient for the church, totally sufficient. This means practically, to put it even more simply, that the Word of God contains all we most need, all we truly need. Think back to that phrase, all we need for life and godliness. We have it all in the Word, which tells us a promise is made, promise is kept, and promise is yet to be fulfilled. What does this mean for us today on the ground at 1114 in Prairie Village? Let me give you five quick takeaways. First, Biblical sufficiency means we must give our attention to Scripture. If the Scripture is sufficient, meaning it gives us what we most need for life and godliness, what we must have to know the Lord, then clearly Scripture has to be the object of our most devoted attention. All throughout the Bible, this discovery is made by different people. You hear the psalmist in Psalm 1 saying that, he desperately needs the Word of God. It's what plants the tree that will honor God. You think of Josiah in the age of the kings who rediscovers the book of God's law, and it, it means that fire, holy fire, breaks out once more among the people of God in a God-glorifying way. You think of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament who rediscovers the law. There it is again, and the people read it for hours, up to six hours. The, the, the law was read among the people of God and then expounded by the priests, and then prayer and confession were intermingled. You think of John 6, verse 68, where one of the disciples says this, even after many depart from Jesus, 
after he says that he is the bread of life and he must be feasted upon. Everyone leaves, many people leave, and one disciple says, to where shall we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. Who says that? Peter. Peter is articulating in John 6, scriptural sufficiency. That's what he's saying. You have the words of life. You alone is the implication. Only you, Jesus. There's no one else to turn to. There's no teacher to take up. There's no self-help book I could buy at Barnes & Noble that would help me as you do, Jesus. The thing I most need is Jesus. He has the words of life. We should trust the word of God, the word of Christ. Trust the words of of a martyred apostle crucified upside down, Peter, over the words of any online figure, any Christian celebrity. Second, biblical sufficiency blends seamlessly with pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit, in other words, to know Christ rightly, to understand the promises holy. Biblical sufficiency blends seamlessly with pneumatology. We learn in John 16, for example, that the Spirit's major role for the disciples in the first century, and for us by extension, is to guide disciples into all the truth. You see this in John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. So this is what the Spirit does for us. This is what we need the Spirit to do, to guide us into all the truth. We can pray to the Holy Spirit that this would happen. This is the focus of the Spirit's ministry in the life of the believer in Christ's own testimony. Third, biblical sufficiency ends the need for new special revelation and outshines general revelation. Let me say that again. Biblical sufficiency ends the need for new special revelation and outshines by far general revelation, good as general revelation is. This is a big point to understand. We are commonly urged today as evangelicals that we need new revelations from God. We need God to audibly speak to us. We need a mystical sense for us to move forward. Let it be clear, according to the previous point, that the Spirit ministers to every believer and does, at certain points, lead us and guide us in ways that are hard to sum up. But we need to note Peter's words and their implication, that if God has given us all we need for life and godliness in His revelation, in His promises, in the knowledge of Christ, we don't need to hear an audible voice from heaven telling us which job to take or which socks to wear or who to date or these sorts of things. We need the wisdom of God. We need to constantly pray to God. We need to be studying Scripture, and we need to make good decisions as best we can, always trusting that God can open doors and close them as He wishes. There's a book called Jesus Calling that has sold over 15 million copies. That's a serious seller right there, 15 million and more, which tells us essentially that this author, Sarah Young, received messages that were extra special, effectively, revelation from God. She says this early on in Jesus' calling, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. What an interesting phrase. I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Now, I love the desire to know the Lord that's evident here. Thankful for that in this fallen world. But this this pretty clearly indicates that the Word of God is not personal enough for us. 
And what I want you to hear from me today is that the Word of God is exactly what we need. It is personal. The Word of God pierces the heart, pierces the soul. It changes us. The Word of God applies to all of our life. The biblical wisdom that is to be harvested from all the pages of Scripture is personal for you and me. There is no person it is not meant for. There is no person the Bible is not sufficient for. It is sufficient for every single Christian, every single person on earth, though many, sadly, do not turn to it. So the point is this. We don't need new special revelation. What we most need is to study the special revelation God has given us and to to apply it and take it in and be transformed by it. And watch, yes, as the Spirit leads us and guides us. Along these same lines, neither are we able to learn God's ultimate truth through general revelation. And here I'm thinking especially of Catholic theology, for example, and Aquinas who would say that we usually need special revelation to know about Christ, but in some cases, if we're really sharp and really intense, we can learn what we need to know we ourselves, and that is not the case. We need the Word of God. Every person needs the Word of God to know Christ, to be saved, to grow in grace. Fourth, biblical sufficiency frames all our life approach. Everything. This doesn't mean that we can't take aspirin for a headache. You know, you get a headache and you say, well, the Word of God is sufficient, so no aspirin. No. You know, that's not what we're urging here from this pulpit and in this kind of doctrinal series. The point is this. As we have said, the things we most need are the truths and doctrines of God. This is broader than knowing mere verses, important as that is, memorization of verses. We also need to know the Christian worldview from all the text of Scripture. The greatest truth of them all is that whatever heartache and trial we currently face, whatever challenges and problems are in our life, God has given us all we need to know Him, to glorify Him, to obey Him, and enter eternity when we die. Scriptural sufficiency does not mean that there are not other things to study in this life. There surely are. All truth is God's truth. It does mean that this is what we need for zdoe kai eusebia, life, eternal life, and godliness. Fifth, and lastly, biblical sufficiency kills dissatisfaction with God. Kills it. When we take it seriously, you and I do not need more from God. We need to obey and trust what God has given us. That is the great need of the Christian life. And it will be accomplished by divine grace through the power of the Holy Spirit in you and me. If God says stop, we stop. We stop on a dime. Grace does not kill obedience. Grace drives obedience. If God tells us to do something, we do it. We need to conclude. Biblical sufficiency means that we have God's promises and we have all we need to be faithful to Christ. All of this entails that the God who kept his earlier promises is trustworthy. He will keep his ultimate promise to send Christ back to us. You have just a little picture of this in certain books and uh, media in this world. I think back of two towers to end where we began. Things are at their absolute worst as this story plays out. But then one figure looks out of this castle, which is about to fall to the forces of evil, and says this quietly, the sun is rising. That's all he says. And that indicates what we know to be true, that the one who was coming back, the great warrior, is returning, and he does indeed return. Friends, the word given us, the true word as believers, was sufficient. The promise was true. The covenant has held. 
it will be this way into all eternity for the people of God. Let's pray.